All right, once again, if you have your Bibles, let's be looking at Galatians chapter 3. I'd like to reread two of the verses that we read a moment ago in our scripture reading. First of all, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Now drop down to verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will be with us today as we look into God's word. Oh, dear Lord, I want more than anything else that you will now quiet my heart, that you will now give me the leadership, presence, encouragement, and confidence of the Holy Spirit to bring your word today in a manner that you will be able to bless, that will glorify you, and that will reach your people. Lord, for comfort, for admonition, for encouragement, whatever it is that the dear child of God listening in today may need, I pray, Lord, that you will sanctify this message to that end. And Lord, should we have anybody at all joining us who doesn't know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, once again, our prayer, as always, is, is that you will use God's word to awaken such a person to their lost estate, to their need of Jesus Christ, to the redemption and salvation freely offered in him, and use the message today to communicate that and draw that person to yourself in saving faith. For this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you remember a couple of weeks ago, we began a series entitled Trees with a Message, and it has to do with the trees of the Bible. And you recall also that last Sunday, being Mother's Day, we took a break from that and looked at something else uh, in favor of Mother's Day. But I want to come back now to that series, Trees with a Message. Recall also that we had given two broad uh, designations or uh, divisions within uh, how we would look at the trees in the Bible, trees with a message. And we talked first of all about the towering trees, of which there are three. They are unique, they are unparalleled, hence the idea of towering trees. And uh, then we also just uh, had the regular trees of the Bible that we encounter in our normal reading of the Bible, all throughout the Bible, in other words. And we called them telling trees. Now, where we are in this is to come back to the towering trees of scriptures. I mentioned there are three of these, of which we have looked at two so far. The first of them is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you remember we found this in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. And we gave a little description for this particular tree. We called it the tree of probation because man was given a test. Would he obey God or would he not obey God? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we considered the tree of life, and we called this the tree of paradise because they were in the garden. They were in paradise, and had they obeyed God and been given the privilege to eat of the tree of life, they would have had eternal life. They would have lived forever, and the paradise of which the Garden of Eden was simply an earthly foreshadowing would have been theirs. Now, I want today to look at the third of those trees, and we're going to call it the tree of Calvary. So right away, I'm sure you're thinking, well, tree of Calvary, he must be talking about the cross, and indeed I am. But you might be asking another question, and that would be certainly appropriate, and that question would be, well, why is he referring to it as a tree? Is he just calling the cross a tree because that's what his series is, and, and sometimes we use that in poetry, and so it makes for a good way to uh, have a series or have a message? No, emphatically no. Here's the thing that is so interesting about this third tree, which I would like to style the tree of punishment. 
It is simply this, that when you come to the New Testament, you will find five references that refer to the cross of Calvary as a tree. Now, I think it will help us. I'm just going to take a moment for this. But your Bible is already closed, Galatians chapter 3, where we have one of those. But let's turn back to the book of Acts, because I want to briefly show you each of the five of these, and then we'll come back and we'll look in more detail where that's appropriate. So turn to the book of Acts chapter 5, and the verse that we're looking for here is verse number 30, Acts 5 and verse 30. And if you read with me now and listen in, it says, the God of our fathers, and, and Peter is speaking, of course, the God of our fathers, he said, raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Notice specifically, he says, slew and hanged on a tree. Of course, he's referring to the cross. And then we come over to chapter 10, where again, Peter is the speaker. Um, this is to the household of Cornelius. And in Acts chapter 10 and verse 39, uh, we have Peter making the same reference. It says, and we are witnesses of all things which he, that is Jesus, did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, who they slew and hanged on a tree. Once again, notice how he phrases this, who they slew and hanged on a tree. So there is our second reference. Uh, to the cross of Calvary as a tree. We've already seen Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. And then we find the final reference to this uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5. And you'll have to pardon me because I missed one in the book of Acts. So if you didn't turn and you're still there, let's just look at Acts chapter 13. We go forward. This is kind of a general reference, but Paul is the speaker here. And in Acts chapter 13 and verse 29, um, the Apostle Paul is speaking in one of his sermons on the missionary first missionary journey, and he says this, And though they found no cause of death in him, verse number 28, they desired Pilate that he should be slain, and when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree. So three references now in the book of Acts, one in Galatians 3.13, and then the first Peter reference that I referred to a moment ago. So let's go forward now and just have a quick look at 1 Peter chapter 2. So this will be the third time that Peter refers to the cross of Calvary as a tree. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, referring to Jesus, Peter says this, "...who his own self bear our sins in his body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed." Now isn't that fascinating, that somehow the Bible the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God directs both Paul and Peter to make a reference to the cross of Calvary as a tree. That's not something that we would normally do. It has to be something that's designed. God never wastes his words. And so it has to be that it's designed to take us back to the interaction of these other two trees that we've looked at previously, and in fact, really, it's the cross of Calvary, the tree of Calvary, that sort of bridges the gap, that solves the tension that exists between the two trees that we've already looked at. Because on the one hand, you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of probation. That didn't end well. Man disobeyed God and plunged the entire human race into sin and death. And then you have the tree of life, which man was excluded from because of his sin, and you have the idea of paradise lost and the, par and the idea of paradise regained as you come forward in the New Testament and see that paradise, according to the promise of God given here, God sends a redeemer. He makes it possible for, once again, 
paradise, to be a part of the redeemed people of God, to be offered to the redeemed people of God. But how? How is this tension solved? This this problem between sin and being excluded from paradise on earth and then being admitted to it one day, those of us who know the Lord, how is that solved? Well, of course, it's solved in the redemption. It's solved in the what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary. So it's really the tree of Calvary that solves this whole problem and brings these two thoughts together. It's really kind of the linchpin in the whole idea of these towering trees of Scripture. So what I'd like to do at this point is go ahead and trace all of this out for us by looking at three thoughts. First of all, we're going to be looking at the promise of deliverance. So for that, if you'll go back to the book of Genesis chapter 3, I just want to survey some of the things that are there so that we can get a better idea of what I've tried to say uh, by way of introduction and be sure that all of those things are clear in our minds. So if we go back to Genesis chapter 3, the operative verse, of course, is where God promised. Um, He promised victory. He promised redemption. He promised deliverance from this, this curse of sin into which man fell by transgressing in the garden. And he says here, Speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee, that is the serpent, and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So the important thing to see here is is that before this chapter is over with, God paints a ray of hope. God brings hope into this horrible, discouraging situation. Uh, just think about, really, I mean, that that is overall the tenor of this chapter. Just, just think about how overwhelming this must have been to Adam to realize the awful mess. Mess is to put it extremely mildly. And so we see a reference to this in verse number 17. It talks about the curse. The New Testament will elaborate more on this, but for now it's enough to see that the word does occur. And unto Adam, verse 17, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. And again, we see more of this when we come to the New Testament. This this idea of this curse is developed. But then we drop to verse 19, and we see a reference to death, which of course reminds us, uh, to dust, which of course reminds us of death, the condemnation. It says there, in the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. So what have we seen so far? A curse, we've seen death, and then we get down to verse 24 and we see the the, the, the expulsion, the exclusion from the paradise, from the tree of life, where it says, so he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Paradise lost. But what about paradise regained? How is that going to be accomplished? And that's this great, tremendous verse which theologians refer to many times as the Proto-Evangelium. Sounds like a big word, but Proto means first, and Evangelium refers to the gospel. And it's the whole idea that the promise of verse 15 is actually the first reference that we have in the Bible to the gospel. And if you think about this, we've often talked about the law of first mention. We've also often talked about the idea of progressive revelation. So you expect the first time that any reference is made to the gospel or the hope of redemption, 
that it's going to be pregnant with the ideas which will then be developed more adequately and fully as Scripture progresses. That's exactly what you have. Could I just quickly call your attention to how much that's so? You could preach a whole sermon or a series of sermons, I guess, on Galatians, or I'm sorry, Genesis 3.15. But first of all, I would like you to see, first of all, that this is a gracious promise. This deliverance that God promised, this deliverer, it's all of grace. He says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman. See, no one says that God has to do this. If anything, man is under condemnation. He justly deserves that. God would have been entirely righteous had at this point he brought down the physical death. In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. But he didn't do that. Hundreds of years later, of course, Adam and Eve did die because sin entered into the world through their transgression. But the important thing now to see is, is that God, though entirely righteous, in doing that, did not do that because he had every intent of showing grace. What a wonderful thing that is to know. See, the promise that he makes there, and I will put enmity, I will. This is unilateral. No one forces God to do this. The grace that's involved in this promise is full and free. And so this promised deliverer is gracious. And not only is this deliverance gracious, but it's future. You notice all the verbs are in the future tense because it has to do with the seed of the woman. Adam and Eve had not even had children at this point. And so when this promised deliverer would come is not specified, but we know that it's something that they could look forward to. Thirdly, we could say of this deliverance that God promised that it is certain because you notice again the emphatic word shall. So read in the verse with me again, and it says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head. See, th there's no maybe so. There's no, well, hopefully it'll work out this way. No, whenever God sets in plan, sets in motion a plan, God carries it through, and God has the power to do this and to bring this deliverance. And so, the deliverance that God promises is certain. And the fourth thing that I would point out to you, talk about a verse that's full, is that this is complete deliverance because you notice the difference. It says here, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Well, the serpent is going to have what he thought was a victory on the cross of Calvary, that's bruising the heel. And of course, it was not, not a significant blow, really. In fact, it really only furthered God's aims in completing the plan of redemption. But when you talk about crushing someone's head, that's fatal. And this is, of course, what it's promised, that this coming deliverer will crush the head of the serpent. And the devil and his works will be absolutely rendered null, void, and ineffective by the work of the Redeemer when he comes. Now, one thing else just to say, and we, we really need to hasten on, but not only is this verse 15 a ray of hope that God gives this rainbow to bring encouragement and strength to Adam in the face of this awful loss. 
But we even, I think, have some hint here of how God was going to carry out this plan. And I, re I refer specifically to verse 21, where it says, And unto Adam also, and unto his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. So what's going on now? Well, it looks forward to the time when the New Testament would make it clear without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And all the sacrifices of the Old Testament portrayed this whole, whole idea that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. God had to shed the blood of these animals in order to clothe the nakedness of Adam and Eve with those skins. And of course, that clothing in what God provided to cover their nakedness refers to the impeccable robes of righteousness in which we are clothed when we trust Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. There's more. If we go to chapter 4, obviously, although we're not given the details of it, God must have provided some type of instruction. He must have provided some insight that's just simply not recorded for us here because Abel knew to bring a sacrifice that involved animals and the shedding of blood. You'll notice Genesis 4 and verse 4. And Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof, and it specifically says, the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But boy, when you go to the next verse and you find that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground, the works of his hands, God disapproved, God rejected his sacrifice. And there it all starts in the very beginning works, things that you and I produce, which is what Cain was attempting to do to please God, and the realization that there's nothing that we can do to please God, and therefore there must needs be a substitute, there must needs be a sacrifice, there must needs be a sin bearer. And somehow Abel knew to do that, and God had respect unto his offering. So put it all together, and what do you have? You have the promise of deliverance. You have verse 15, and then you have these other things that give some indication that God even gave them some idea of how this was going to happen. All right, we need to move on. So secondly, what I want to talk about, kind of just, again, surveying the panorama of all that's involved so that it will all fall in place when we get to the last part of the message. The second thought, though, is the verdict of the law. So if you think about the verdict of the law, if you think about the law, in fact, it's kind of interesting that there's quite a period of time, hundreds of years, in fact, between the time that Adam sinned and when the law was given. In fact, Paul tells us this. Paul is the one, as you know, that has uh, the uh, whose theology it is to reflect the fact that so often God is dealing with great figures. You have, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who is the last Adam, and you have Adam himself, the first Adam, and Paul is the one who often brings out this type of theology. Well, when you get to the book of Romans, chapter 5, you'll this is a key place that Paul is doing that, and he mentions another person. Now, Moses was not any kind of a federal head of the human race, but he was an incredibly, in the plan of God, significant figure. So here's what Paul says in Romans 5.14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. That is to say, there was no specific commandment given to them as in the law that they were violating. And it says, 
had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. That's, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Adam is the figure. He's the first Adam. Jesus Christ is the last Adam. But our whole point now is just to realize that you had hundreds of years in between Adam and when the law was given through Moses. But when the law was given, then, of course, man became accountable. Man uh, was given the further revelation of God's will. And what did that do? Well, that basically just proved what everyone knew all along. But its purpose was to make it emphatically clear to men and women, and that is that we are sinners and that we are guilty of God's uh, and deserving of God's judgment. So in the book of Galatians, once again, um, you have some, again, some broad panoramas that Paul pictures. I'm trying just to give a, a survey of God's purpose with the law before we get to a couple of specific things. So in, in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19, he says, Wherefore then serveth the law? See, death was in the world between Adam and Moses because men are sinners. And this is what God said, In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So why did God bring to bear the law? And this is what Paul is addressing. Wherefore then serveth the law? He says it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Drop to verse 22. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith, verse 23, came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. So what is Paul saying? Well, he's basically saying that God gave the law to prove to us that we are sinners, to show us that there was no way that we could possibly redeem ourselves by the works of our own hands, that we were in fact needing a redeemer, that God's plan for us to be saved by placing our faith in that redeemer was the only way that people can be saved because it is for by grace that we are saved through faith. It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. We simply cannot keep the law. We simply cannot earn God's favor by the works of the law. And this is what Paul is trying to say in broad pictures. Now, in this respect, in Galatians chapter 3, where we've been looking, Paul then gives two specific things from the law. First of all, you'll notice in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10, look at this one. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So what is he saying? He's basically saying once you violated God's law in any point, you are a covenant breaker. You are a transgressor. You are a sinner. And if God's righteous law is not kept in its entirety, then it simply renders us unrighteous before God and deserving of his condemnation. Well, do you begin to see God's wisdom in giving the law to prove to us? Because, there, beloved, there is no one who can keep all the points of the law. 
And Paul is actually quoting in that verse, so maybe you want to keep a couple fingers in Galatians chapter 3, and then go to the book of Deuteronomy, because um, it's really important for us to see how these thoughts are developed in the Old Testament, and then the significance of them is brought out in the New Testament. So in in rather Deuteronomy chapter 27, this is the place that Paul is quoting from in Galatians 3.10. It says, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them. And it says, And all the people shall say amen. So in other words, if you're attempting to please God by works righteousness, if you're thinking that you're going to get your way to heaven by doing good deeds, by keeping the law, and thereby earn God's favor, then you must keep it in its entirety. And Paul says this, if a person does not do that, he brings the curse of the law down upon himself, which of course, this is picking up on the idea of the curse, the condemnation that Adam brought upon the human race when sin entered into the world in the Garden of Eden. Now, more specifically and more to the point of our message today, the tree of Calvary, Paul gives another statement from Deuteronomy, this time from chapter 21. And when you look there, verse 13 is where it's quoted in Galatians. It says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Well, where is that written? That's written in Deuteronomy chapter 21. So now look back to Deuteronomy chapter 21, and you will find this. This is what I'm driving towards. Deuteronomy chapter 21, and uh, we're looking for verses 22 and 23. Now here it says this, And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, take note of that worthy of death, because in the law not everything received a death penalty for not keeping that particular commandment. So if a man is worthy of death, it says, and he be put to death, so the death penalty is carried forth, and thou hang him on a tree. Now, why would they do that? See, it's a separate thing, and this goes back to what we saw in the book of Acts when Peter very carefully says in Acts 5.30, and then in Acts chapter 10, verse 39, slew and hanged. So here's someone who's committed a sin worthy of death. He's guilty. And that punishment is exacted, maybe by stoning. But then it says that it's taken a step further and he's hanged on a tree. Why would they do that? The next verse says, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day for... And this is what Paul is quoting. He that is hanged is accursed of God. He that hanged is accursed of God. So, in other words, here you have a situation whereby someone is worthy of death. They've committed a violation of the law that brings the death penalty upon themselves. That punishment is exacted. That penalty is exacted, as I say, perhaps by stoning. But then the additional step is taken of hanging them on a tree. Why? Well, to make a public display, to make it evident that this person is particularly worthy. He is particularly guilty of the penalty, the punishment which has been exacted. 
And so this is what Paul is talking about in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. And you also have some examples of this in the Old Testament. And in the interest of time, I'm going to uh, not have us turn to those. But if you'd like the references and like to look at them later, you have two examples of this. When Joshua took the Israelites into the land of Canaan, and they were, of course, the Canaanites were under the curse, if you recall. So that helps us understand this. When they finally dealt with Ai and they captured the king of Ai and put him to death, they slew him and they hanged him, it says in that verse, on a tree. Notice again, slew and hanged. Why? Well, to make an example and to demonstrate that these people were under God's curse, the curse of God's judgment. Then you get to chapter 10, verse 26, and you have that coalition of those Canaanite cities, five of those cities, and the battle occurred over Gibeon. You remember the story there, and once again, there were five kings, those five Canaanite kings, and the, the Bible tells us in Joshua chapter 10, verse 26, that once they had been slain, they, they too were hanged on five trees. What's going on here, folks? Well, this is the provision of Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. And you'll read in both cases with Joshua that he was very careful to follow the law. They were hanged on a tree, but they were taken down at sundown. They were accursed of God. Now do you begin to see the significance that we have in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13? Because now it says that Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. In other words, Jesus became accursed in my place and in yours, and thus all of this begins now to tie together. You know, the subject of curses is kind of interesting because so much of, of what we uh, often hear about when the subject of curses comes up is stuff that's uh, flavored with a whole lot of superstition. And I'm sure you've, you've heard of these kinds of things before. And of course, the Bible really doesn't engage in superstition, which is kind of my point in telling you this story. But uh, you've probably heard before, this is kind of one of the more famous ones in the ancient world, but you've probably heard before of the curse of Tutankhamun. So according to the story and according to uh, what we know to be true, that when the Egyptologists who were exploring there eventually located um, the tomb of the famous Egyptian pharaoh Tutankhamun. There was a stone there that was at the uh, entrance, and a curse was pronounced on that stone to anyone who would violate that tomb. It said this, Death shall come on swift wings to him who disturbs the peace of the king. Well, of course, the explorers on that particular day were undeterred by that. They weren't superstitious at all. There was Howard Carter and there was Lord Carnivan. And they opened the tomb. It was to worldwide attention in 1922, and they went in. However, it's kind of interesting what happened after this. Four months later, Lord Carnivan died. He actually was infected by a mosquito bite while he was in Egypt and died. What's really weird is that a few hours after his death back in England, his dog by the name of Susie let out a yelp and died. There's more. 
There was a visit by the financier, the famous financier, George Gould, uh, to the tomb of Tutankhamun. And he died of a fever six months after visiting the tomb. There was a man by the name of Wolf Joel, a South African millionaire. He was murdered a few months after his visit to the tomb. There was a man by the name of A.C. Mace. He was a member of Carter, uh, Howard Carter's. Uh, he was his uh, personal secretary. He was found smothered uh, in his bed in 1929. So you say to yourself, oh, well, that's, all that's just a bunch of happenstance. And it may very well be. I I'm certainly not endorsing the superstitions of the ancient world. I'm simply saying that when the Bible is talking about this curse here, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Beloved, there's no superstition about it. Man is adjudged by God to be a guilty sinner and is deserving of the curse of the law because we have not kept that law. We have proven ourselves to be sinner. We have sinners. We have proven ourselves to be under condemnation. And thus the beautiful things that we see in Galatians chapter 3 with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 2. And that brings me to my last thought in the message today, and that, of course, is the work of Christ. You see, now everything that we've worked in our Bible research, in our Bible study, this is kind of an intensive, information-intensive message today. I hope you've been able to follow, but it all comes together now. Because when we're told in Acts chapter 5 and in Acts chapter 10 that Jesus was slain and hanged, well, of course, on the cross is where he was slain, but it's also where he was hung. In this particular case, Jesus was, his death occurred on the cross, and so did the hanging. But it's interesting, it's two distinct thoughts, because he died for our sins, according to the scriptures. The Bible tells us this. But this hanging on a tree had the additional significance of fulfilling that in the Old Testament, where a person who was hanged on a tree was accursed by God. And this is precisely what Paul is telling us in verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from this curse that we are under, the curse of the law for our disobedience and failure. Christ hath redeemed us by hanging on a tree because it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. In other words, on the cross of Calvary, he became accursed for you and me. This is precisely what Paul is saying. Isn't this just absolutely wonderful? Isn't this just absolutely amazing to know that Jesus Christ became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him? He took my curse. He took my sin. He took my judgment. That's what we're driving at in this. And of course, it's a beautiful picture as well. Galatians does speak of substitution, but it emphatically uses the word redemption. And if you think of what redemption was, redemption was to give someone their freedom by the payment of a ransom. And this is what Jesus Christ did. He tells us in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And so by the shedding of his blood on the cross of Calvary, he paid the ransom price for our sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. By hanging there, he took my curse. He paid my sin penalty. I am redeemed. I am set free from the curse of the law. I am set free from my, my slavery and my bondage to sin and death and given new life in Jesus Christ. And then we have the other reference in 1 Peter 2. So we can go over and take a quick look at that now. 1 Peter 2, and we'll 
we'll sort of finish up by looking at the thoughts that are here. This particular verse really emphasizes the idea of substitution. Not that Galatians doesn't, it certainly does. But if you look at Galatians, or 1 Peter 2, it says here, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Who his own self bear our sins, bear our sins in his body on the tree. And now we're sort of made to think of, of Isaiah chapter 53. You remember verse 6 that says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him, laid on him the iniquity of us all. Then in verse 12, it says, and he was numbered with transgressors, and he bore the sin of many. Sort of makes you think, doesn't it, of the scapegoat in the Old Testament? They confessed the sins of the nation over the head of the scapegoat, and the scapegoat was then banished. It was sent off into the wilderness, carrying those sins away. Makes you think of the Lord Jesus Christ in typology that on the cross of Calvary, our sins were laid upon him, and he carried them away in his work of redemption in order that you and I might have the free gift of God, which is eternal life, in order that you and I might have life when what we deserved was death. And it's interesting that the verse refers to that. Towards the end of the verse, it says that we being dead to sins brings up the fact that sin has brought death into the world should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye are healed. Now, I want to say one more thing about 1 Peter 2 and verse 24. So at the end of the verse, it says, by whose stripes ye are healed. I want to point out something to you that's kind of interesting. Call it a coincidence if you want, but it helps us make a good point. And that very simply is this. Think about the English word curse. C-U-R-S-E, right? So if you take the S out of the word curse, what do you have? Not C-U-R-S-E, but C-U-R-E. If you take S out of curse, you have cure. So if we think of the letter S in the word curse as standing for sin, when you deal with the sin, when you remove the sin and take it away, you take the S out of the word curse, what do you have? You have cure. You have healing. <laughs> it's wonderful, isn't it? And this is what Peter says, by whose stripes ye are healed. This is the work of Christ, beloved, and it brings together all of these ideas from the Old Testament that we've been looking at. And I wanted to tell you a little story that I found some time ago as I was doing some research, and it's actually told originally, at least to my knowledge, told originally by a, a man by the name of Robert Morgan, at least in print, in a book that he's written and titled In This Verse. And it has to do with a rabbi by the name of Ginsburg, and Rabbi Ginsburg was actually the head of the Jews in Poland. And, well, he had a son who was born in like all fathers, he was greatly proud, uh, kind of cherished the dream, really, that one day his son would follow in his footsteps and also lead the Jews in Poland. But boy, life has a, an interesting way of throwing us curves, doesn't it? And when the boy became 14, a, a, an early teen, 
uh, he rebelled. He rebelled against the strict Pharisaism of the and legalism in, in which he was raised. And then when he met the the young lady whom his parents had selected for him to marry, uh, that didn't please him, and he rebelled even more. And finally, he he left home at the age of fifteen, and he eventually wound up in England, where when he had been in England for a little while, he met a man who began to tell him about Jesus from Isaiah chapter 53. Well, of course, you have to remember this is this young man is a Jew, and he's been brought up to refuse and to reject Jesus. But he goes home, he thinks about this, and the Spirit of God begins to convict him in the testimony of the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53 is so powerful, it's so overwhelming, that he becomes convinced that Jesus Christ is indeed that sin-bearer, he is indeed the person who was on the cross of Calvary to bear our sins, just like the sacrifices of the Old Testament, but which they could never successfully and completely and ultimately ever do. He became convinced of this, and he became a Christian. Oh boy, well, this set off a furor because he was living with an uncle, so they were relatives in England, and when they found this out, their reaction was extreme. Um they drove him away, in fact, out of the home with curses and with broomsticks and with with hot water. And then he even encountered a group of Jews who uh, beat him up and, and just left him in terrible shape. And you can imagine that they ultimately tried to talk him out of his conversion, to try to talk him back into the fold of Judaism and the boy was steadfast. His faith was genuine, and he wouldn't hear of it. And they pronounced the excommunication curses upon him. Cursed shall you be by day, cursed by night, cursed when standing, and cursed when lying down. And this went on and on. Can you imagine how overwhelming that must have been for a young man, a teenager? Can you imagine the ostracism, the ignominy, the shame of being driven out. And when he got alone, he began to think, began to meditate, and he said, it was almost as if the Lord Jesus appeared to him. He could see Jesus on the cross. He could see his stretched out arms. And he said it was as if words were emblazoned over his head, that is the Redeemer, that is the Lord Jesus on the cross, cursed uh, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Oh, beloved, it's a wonderful thing, is it not? He was so happy that he stumbled out into the street. He encountered a policeman. The policeman thought that he was drunk, and he said, oh, no, sir. He said, I'm not drunk, but he said, I am very happy. He was filled with peace. He was filled with joy. And, beloved, I have to tell you, that's exactly what happens when a person comes to trust Jesus Christ as personal Savior. When we give up our human efforts, when we give up our works, when we realize there's nothing that we can do except to trust in the finished work of Christ on Calvary, oh then, beloved, peace and joy comes our way. Nothing more thrilling, nothing more soul-liberating. And I ask you in conclusion to think with me about the fact, who but God could put all of this intricate detail together? Who but God could give us three towering trees, two of which are obvious because they're called trees, but then 
to bring to bear the cross of Jesus and to carefully delineate in his word that it too is a tree, the tree of Calvary. And why? Because it was meant to be a picture to show us that the one dying there was accursed of God in our place, that he took our punishment, that he took our sin. This is just, oh, this is just marvelous. This is beyond the imagination almost. That, But the Bible is a supernatural book, and God is a supernatural God, and salvation is a supernatural work. It's no wonder these are the three towering trees of Scripture. Tree of life, which we call the tree of paradise, Tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it didn't end well, and we called that the tree of probation, but it ended with condemnation. And then, of course, the tree of Calvary, which we've called the tree of punishment, because there Jesus suffered our penalty. He suffered our punishment. <clears throat> but you know something? That tree of Calvary is central to the other two trees, and it's not without significance that it the tree of Calvary was the central of the three. I just want you to think about this with me for a moment as we close. Let's imagine that on the left hand, we have the tree on which the unrepentant thief is. And according to the story in Luke chapter 23, uh, the other thief had to rebuke him. He railed on Jesus. The other thief had to rebuke him and say, Dost thou, thou fear God, seeing that we are in the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we received the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. This was a man who was under condemnation. He was certainly a sinner, but he was unrepentant. He refused any offer of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, so far as we know, he died in his sins. He died under condemnation. Makes us think about in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it didn't end well. And when man chose to sin, he brought condemnation upon himself. <clears throat> Let's imagine that on the right side of Jesus, there is the repentant thief. He says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He comes to believe in Jesus. He places his faith in him. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And what does Jesus say to him? In Luke chapter 23, in verse 43, he says, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Paradise the paradise that was lost. But think back to the promise. Genesis 3.15, the ray of hope, the promised Redeemer. And here now is this Redeemer. He's come into the world. He's hanging on the cross. And there is a thief who repents of his sins and trusts him and finds paradise regained. And as I said to you at the very beginning, it's that central tree, the one that towers even above the other towering two that solves the whole problem, that dissolves the tension, that brings reconciliation, and provides the offer of salvation full and free through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're listening today and you're a believer, I trust that if nothing else, it gives us such joy to know of the marvel of God's plan of salvation, of which we are a part now by faith in Christ. And I hope it gives us even more confidence that if we encounter somebody this week with whom we can share this message, it's such a wonderful, incredible message that we have to share. And if you're here listening today and don't know the Lord Jesus as personal Savior, do you not see? There he was hanging on the tree, 
taking your penalty, taking your sin because you cannot save yourself. But like that repentant thief, he will save you if you will come to him and make a sincere confession of your sins, if you will be willing to repent and turn from them and trust him by faith, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thanks so much for listening today, and may God give you a blessed week this coming week.